First Peter chapter one today, I'm gonna show you what an appropriate response looks like. Uh, the only response to such a great salvation. Let me, as we turn, get our minds wrapped around and remembering the series that we're in. Identity matters, and so we're in the book of First Peter, which is all about identity. It's all about this apostle writing to Christians who were scattered on the borders and the outskirts of Rome in the year 64 AD, which is the same year when great persecution and pain would come to Christians because they follow the way. And they would experience for 300 years after that, our brothers and sisters of the past, great persecution for following Jesus. And Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit, writes this letter to the dispersed church knowing good and well that they needed this word for this year and time of their life. And so God speaks to us today in a similar manner, First Peter, knowing that in our life we are going to need these words and remember who we are as we walk through the reality and the trials of life. So Peter begins his letter to these Christians who he knew, who he knew, who knew were hurting, being persecuted, Some had already died, some had been thrown in prison, and they were going to face something extremely painful in their life. He starts by reminding them who they are and reminding them what God is giving them and elevating their thoughts out of their circumstance and their situation into who they are and what they have. He calls them elect exiles, chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the spirit, God through his power has changed you for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, predestined, foreknown to receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of God. Then he goes on to say, blessed be the God and Father according to his great mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Reminding them of this inheritance, something is waiting for you. In this you rejoice. This is the wonderful thing they were rejoicing in. But he reminds them of like this constant back and forth of then, but now, then, but now, then, but now, then, wonderful, it's coming, it's, you're awaiting it. But now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, by the way, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right now, though, this wonderful news of what's awaiting you needs to impact your life in a way that keeps your faith strong so you don't get lost in the weeds of what's happening day in and day out in your life. Very easy to do. Peter is elevating, not Peter, but God through Peter, elevating their hearts to remember what is most important and what they have through every circumstance. Last week then, he culminates this in obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we talked about this salvation that had been prophesied for hundreds of years, thousands of years to come, that the prophets of old who, who patiently waited and inquired specifically about when it was to come did not see it, but now we see it. It has come and it's here and we know the salvation. We know who it's through. We know our Messiah. It is here. We have the salvation and it's waiting. 
They've been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter has set the stage. He has spent the whole, the whole amount of First Peter reminding them who they are, what they have, elevating their thoughts to the heavenly places to see, man, what you are going through now is nothing compared to what's awaiting you. Keep your eyes fixed on this. You have been saved. The salvation awaits you. So... Take your eyes and look at verse 13. Look at that first word he says, therefore. It's like I've said all of this to bring it to this moment here at the very beginning of this letter, therefore. What should we do with all this information? How about this? What is an appropriate response to this being the reality in our life as a believer, as a Christian? To have such a great salvation awaiting us to have something so eternally lasting that it overshadows anything temporarily happening now. What is the appropriate response? That's what we're gonna look at today. So let me read the passage and then we'll talk about it. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith so that your faith and hope are in God. So spoiler, what's Peter trying to accomplish in their hearts through what they're going through now? He says there in the very beginning, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you. And then he says here in verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's look at three things. Three responses, appropriate responses that salvation should produce in the lives of believers. You say you're a believer. You say you're a Christian. You're here. An assumption that we all are following Jesus. Then what you should see appropriately, naturally responding in your life because of such a great salvation are these three things, Peter says. And the first one is this, hope. Hope. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says they're preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded, I want you to put a pen there. We're going to come back to that. And I want us to focus here on hope, knowing that we'll come back to those two things. Very important. He says, set your hope fully on on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A couple of things we have to solidify here. What, what, is, what does hope mean? What does it mean by hope? And then what is this grace that is to be revealed to us? We are hoping it now 
because of God's grace that is waiting for you. So how do you define, according to the, the letter here, what this grace is that's waiting for you? Well, it's everything that he said before. He's real, like God has caused you to be born again to a living hope earlier in the, in the chapter. God's call, he has worked in you to be born again. Your eyes are open and what's awaiting you, what's before you is a living hope. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's risen. He's at the right hand of the father. He is alive. He ever lives to intercede for you. He is your advocate according to first John two, that if you sin, you have an advocate with the father and he is waiting to be told by the father when to come again and do away with evil once and for all, casting all evil and darkness, hell and uh, uh, Satan and the followers of Satan and those who reject Jesus into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth into hell forever. And the only thing that's left will be his kingdom that will permeate everything, no darkness anymore. A living hope is what we have. But hope, according to the scriptures, is what we have now. It's something that because of what's coming, we have something now. We have a guarantee of the future, so right now I experience something. I experience hope, which is a, a, a pleasant expectation, confident that things will turn out the way that I believe that they will. So that when things are not turning out the way that I want them to now here in life, I'm not despairing. I'm not fully lost in the darkness of depression and in the pit of a miry clay suffocating and drowning like those who have no hope in the world. But because I have Jesus, whatever I go through here, hope wells up within me and I abound and God is saying that he wants me to. Peter is wanting them to abound in hope. Concerning the salvation, it's so great, right? Therefore, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you. Grace being God giving you what you can't get from your own strength, what you do not deserve. It is waiting for you. It's what you need. It's that inheritance. It's that salvation. It's that place. It's by his side. It's eternal life. Been promised it. It's waiting for you. That should produce hope. So what if you're a believer now and you're not experiencing hope? Hang on to that. We're gonna come to that. But look what he says here. Maybe your translation says this, fix your hope. But it doesn't say just kind of fix your hope. It doesn't say along with other things, hope in this. It says set your hope fully, which would imply what? That we struggle with setting our hope on other things beside this, which would imply that our life is sometimes spent placing our hope, which could be culminated in simple terms as what is going to make life matter. Or what's going to make me happy? Or what's going to bring joy into my life? Or or what's going to make me who I believe I need to be? That hope gets set on temporary things. And that does not last. It does not help. When your hope is set on things of this earth, when the waters come and the waves crash over your life, that hope will not sustain you. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you. The second thing he's going to show that it should produce in our life, not just hope, but an appropriate response to such a great salvation is this, holiness. Holiness, look what he says here next. In verse 14, here's where the identity comes in. As obedient children, 
Children, you, you are adopted by God. You belong to him. You're part of the family. That word obedient, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Salvation should naturally result in, in my life displaying the holiness of God because of his character, because of who saved me, who called me. He is holy, therefore I am to be holy. Now, if you're like me, when you come across passages like this and you hear holiness or work or obedience, immediately something starts to feel strange inside of you. Either one, there's conviction because you know you're not walking in holiness or obedience, or maybe there's this like, well, how do I reconcile holiness and obedience with grace that, that, that none of this has to do with my salvation at all in saving me, that I'm saved apart from works and apart from a being obedient. God on his own takes the obedience of Jesus and he sacrifices him in my place and that's imputed to me apart from works so that I cannot boast. How am I to make sense then of all of the scripture telling me though to work in good works and to be obedient and to be holy? Well, it's easy. Don't cross the two. You are saved not by works, but by the work of God. But you live after you're saved appropriately in the right response, if you have received something so amazing, how else should we respond to something that's so wonderful, that's beyond anything that we deserve, that's been given to us freely, that has taken us from an eternity of death, has taken us out of prison that we deserve to be in forever and freed us? How would that change someone's life? It should change it. The appropriate response, one should be hope but secondly, should be holiness. Let's talk about holiness. You've heard the word sanctify or sanctification, and you hear the word holiness in scripture. Those words go together. We have been sanctified in the spirit, in the sanctification of the spirit, according to the first two verses of First Peter, which means God has set us apart. Set us apart from what or from who? We have been set apart from the world. We used to be in the world. Now we no longer are not. He's pulled us out of darkness and he's placed us in the marvelous light. We get these pictures of being in a different realm perspective and now we're in a different place. We have been set apart. We, we live and move and have our being in a totally different realm than the one we were lost in. It's in God's realm. God himself being holy, different. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, praying for all of us, praying for his disciples, then he prayed for all who would believe in him, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That the desire of God, the desire of Jesus laying down his life and what it would result in would be those being saved and then their lives being transformed by what? By the word. And that God would sanctify them. He would make them holy. We have been predestined, our purpose in life, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which involves the conduct in our life. So now look at the verse with all of that said. Read it again with me. As obedient children, here's how you understand what holiness looks like because he gives us what it doesn't look like. He gives us the opposite of holiness. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Former ignorance was when? When we did not know Jesus and we did not have the knowledge of him. We did not know right and wrong and we lived in darkness going our own way, doing what was right in our own eyes. We acted in ignorance. And you see this kind of repeated throughout scripture where in the book of Acts where the people are experiencing mercy because, because uh, the preacher is telling them that, that God has overlooked your years of ignorance, but now you have the knowledge of the truth. Now you need to repent according to knowledge. Paul received mercy from God because he thought he was doing the right thing. Thing, but God saw that he was acting in ignorance and God came and saved him and his whole life changed. Paul was completely different. Saul was completely different as a result of meeting Jesus. That is the natural response that should happen. It should happen in our lives that we should be changed immediately and changing every day of our life. Moving away from what? Away from the world. As it here, our former ignorance, the way we lived, the way we thought, the way we felt, the way we moved, what we wanted to do, our affections, all of that, the whole being of the person being changed from that former state of darkness and ignorance, moving away from that and becoming more and more like the God who saved them. What does holiness feel like? I want you to imagine what it's like to live on planet Earth I'm going to bring politics into this, but just bear with me. Wherever you stand politically, what do you think about the other side? Right? If you have a political stance, it's because you believe that this political side that I'm on is right and the other side is wrong. So what happens in your life when you are tasked with thinking like, acting like, looking like, feeling like the other side of the party, the one you don't agree with? Right? You, you, you kind of repel against any thought, action that would make you seem like, look like, in the eyes especially your peers, the other side you disagree with. Right there, you are displaying what it, what it is to live in holiness. You are set apart from, from that group. And now you're living in this group and you run with the people who think like you. It's that tribalism we see all over the world now. And people are more motivated more motivated by not looking like others because they can't stand what others look like and they want to be they want to be like the realm that they live in and the tribe they run with that's natural actually that that's actually what holiness should feel like that's how we as christians should be living but but all of that holy energy of being set apart should not be just sucked up into politics and culture it should be sucked up into god's kingdom and feeling that repulsion from any moment in our life that would make us want to live like the world, act like the world, think like the world, sympathize with worldliness, the type, the type of worldliness that's sending people to hell, that kept us locked in chains of darkness. And so God has saved us and he's opened our eyes. We're no longer ignorant, so how could we go back to the vomit? But we do, don't we? God's children, because they remember who they are, they live like God who is holy. Isaiah, when he saw his God on the throne in Isaiah 6, Isaiah said immediately, just seeing God and being in his presence, he was immediately overcome with his wickedness. I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's realizing there how set apart from God he is. 
I am in the midst of people who are not like this God before me. I am not like him. And God immediately through that confession brings a a flaming coal and he places it to his lips, symbolizing cleansing, which is what God does from us. When someone realizes and their eyes are open to where they live and where God is and they need to be over there where God is and in his realm, living in his kingdom, the only response should be contrition. It should be repentance. It should be a cry for mercy. And God looks down on that and never turns that away. Isaiah tells us that he lives with those who are contrite in heart. He is near to them, near to the brokenhearted. God does not turn away the penitent person, but the person who is lifted up in pride, who believes in their gut, they are living exactly how they should live, that they will determine what's right. They will determine what this word says. They will determine what God's kingdom looks like. All the while, it's just, it's just trying to make God fit into their world. Are we doing that? Do we spend all of our holy energy trying to make God fit into our sense of holiness and live in our realm when all the while our efforts of life should be trying to be conformed to him? He has nothing he needs to change. We should, we should sus- already assume and suspect that somewhere in our life we are outside of God's holiness. It's always going to be the case living in these bodies of death We are always going to love the world somewhere in our life and God is trying to weed that out of us in love, in patience, and care because it is the best thing for us and that's what will change the world if we change. People see God through us as we become light. But remember, all of this is the response to what God's already done for us. This is what's the appropriate. This is what's worthy of the salvation that's come to us. Hope, are you living in hope? Do you right now, though, whatever's going on in your life, know like, yes, I, I have tears. But when I think about what's waiting for me, I can't help but to well up with joy and a sense of hope that not all's lost. And then here now, among people in the world, you are conducting your life in holiness. What if you say you're a believer and you say, but I don't see this in my life? We'll come to that. What's the third thing that this salvation should result in in our life? It's this, fear. Hope, holiness, and fear. First Peter, look at these next few verses with me. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Working it backwards, exile means your time on earth. That's simply what it means. You're exiled from your home. You're you're not in your home, which means you're not in heaven. You're not where God is yet. You're on earth. It's like being in exile. It's like I'm a sojourner, pilgrim. I'm passing through. How should I conduct myself? I should conduct myself in holiness, but I also should be conducting myself here, he says, with fear. But who should? Working it backwards. If you call on him as father. So he immediately includes everyone in this. If you're among the people who look to God and you say he's my father, which means I'm a child of God. Abba, father, my, my spirit cries out. He is, he is my father. He's not just a, 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 a deity, personal relationship. If you call on him as father. Okay, that would include us making the assumption. And then what is this description If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. 
So you have this God who now has become your father. If you call on him as father, just like our earthly fathers who discipline us, who, who look after us and our conduct. And this God judges everyone impartially without favoritism, which means no one gets off the hook. No one gets special treatment. No one, when it comes to God, has like an in route, like in the in crowd, and they, they get the kind of like the, the pass. Everyone, because God is perfect, judges everyone completely, impartially, and according to his law, and perfectly. No one is special. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. I don't care where you were born, where you live, where you haven't lived, where you're going to live. I don't care what you've done, what you haven't done. You, in the eyes of God and his presence, will be judged the same as everyone else. How does that motivate you to live now? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So we are responding to the salvation with fear because of two reasons, because of God's judgment, who judges impartially. But secondly, this, because of what it took to save us. Look at this next verse. Verse 18, referring to the mind. Now you know something, so you're living now with hope, holiness, and fear because you know who God is. He's your father who judges impartially, but also he puts this little cherry on top of it, knowing also this, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see what Peter is doing? Do you see what God's communicating to us? I'm giving you knowledge right now. I want you to know something about me, but I want you to think with the right perspective about every day when you wake up and you go to sleep about how serious the conduct of your life is. One, you have a God who is going to judge each person according to their deeds, but you also have God reminding you how you were saved, what it took to save you. Deserving hell, deserving judgment, no better than anyone else, fully 100% lost have been fully 100% saved, but what did it take to save you? It took the death of his son. Knowing this, that you were ransomed. What, do you, what, what picture do we get there with the word ransom? It's like, being, it's like being captive. I've been kidnapped, and now I have been ransomed. Someone has paid something with very, something very valuable has been given in order to release me from captivity. And what was it that was used here to ransom us? Was it money? No. No, no, no. Something far more valuable than that. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without spot. An innocent person, but not just any innocent person, the innocent person who was also the son of God, the innocent person who is God himself, God himself dying in your place to ransom you from what? From darkness, from sin, from yourself, like we heard last week from Todd, to save you out of something and, and, and bring you into his kingdom. Now, what, what type of 
wrath do you think would be provoked of a father who gave up their only son for someone who didn't deserve it and for that person who didn't deserve it then turns around and tramples over and just stomps all over frivolously and 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 with with no no regard for the son that died and his blood that was spilt and just wallows like a pig in the blood of the son of the father who gave up his only son what is there to be left in the mind of the father who sees the person treating the sacrifice of his son like that, I would say it should leave us terrified. Hebrews talks about this, that if we sin willfully, we no longer in in our former ignorance, we have knowledge of the truth. If we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us, but a fearful expectation of judgment. A very serious thing. Consider God is the impartial judge. And remember, knowing what you were ransomed with, the blood of Jesus. So this word fear has kind of a dual meaning here. You are supposed to be terrified, appropriately terrified, but reverentially honoring what was done on your behalf. This fear kind of goes both ways. Let me read you some other scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul says this about our time here on earth before we get to heaven. He says this, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, whether in heaven or on earth, we make it our aim to please him. The personal aim of the life of Paul was to please his heavenly father. We make it our aim, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This fear is supposed to motivate us here and now. It is the, the loving thing for God to give us the knowledge that we need now that will produce in us fear the type that helps us not go back to a former ignorance, that helps us not to go in a place where we would provoke his wrath. And there seems to be, there's not a clarity here, but there seems to be this, this is a fear of the judgment that you will stand before God in one day, but also the the current discipline that God gives to his children now. You do not have to be disciplined by the Lord to grow. You don't have to learn your lesson through discipline, but if you are a legitimate child, according to Hebrews 12, he will bring discipline in your life. It's because he loves you. And the goal is to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. First Peter, you guys still with me? Here we go. So what if you don't see fear in your life? This is where I'm culminating this to. Three appropriate responses in the life of a believer to the fact that God has given you such a great salvation is to live in hope, is to conduct yourselves with holiness and to conduct yourselves with fear. He says this to conclude it concerning Jesus, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the life last times for the sake of you. Again, he's just reminding us how great this is. For the sake of you, who through him, Jesus, are believers in God who raised him from the dead, God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him Jesus glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is what God's trying to produce in us. So this knowledge is supposed to invade our mind, change our mind, so we live according to the knowledge. So what if 
I'm sitting here and I'm hearing you say all this, Jasper, and I'm overcome with fear, but it's just a fearful expectation of judgment because I don't see hope in my life. I don't see holiness in my life. I don't see the type of fear that's reverential, that's responding appropriately to God. I'm just fearful of being judged by him. Well, that's why I want to bring your minds to the very beginning. We're going to end with this focus. Verse 13. Peter goes from the first few verses of chapter one into what's awesome, and he transitions into the response in your life, but there's a bridge there. There's something there that he says, there's two things that he said are completely necessary, necessary ingredients in your life for your life responding this way. There's two things in verse 13. What does he say here? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, but you're sitting here now and you say, I do not have hope in my life. I'm convicted that I am not living in holiness. I know I'm not perfect, but I am not in any way living in holiness. And the only fear that I have in my life is God judging me according to my sins. Then you need to consider two things about your mind, which is where this battle is going to be won. The first thing is this, that you have an unprepared mind. Your mind is not prepared for action. It means that your mind is saturated with parasitic beliefs. When he says preparing your minds for action, the literal translation is girding up the loins of your mind. We don't use that language here because we don't have to gird up our loins. Maybe as a woman, if you're wearing a dress, you kind of have to. Because if you're going to do anything that involves action or fight or war or need to be nimble and move quick, back in that day, the clothing hung loose all the way down to the knees. And if they were going to be ready for action, you know what they did? They had to take all that loose clothing and gird it up, tuck it into their belt so they they were not impeded at all. And they were able to respond appropriately to their situation, whether it be war or sport, or moving quickly, because all that loose clothing will impede you. So now make the correlation. This is the correlation Peter's saying. Your mind is not girded. You have loose ends of your mind. You have so many things that are just hanging loose in your mind that you believe, you actually believe, and you dwell on, and you think of, and you let actually just suck the life out of you. There's no way you can experience hope when you're filled with self-pity, When you actually believe that you are the victim, you actually believe that everyone else has it better than you. You actually, you spend your days and your months and your weeks just simply complaining all the time about how bad you have it. You will not experience hope because your mind is not girded up. And you know the deception of the enemy with self-pity? It makes you feel bad about yourself, but really all it is is covetousness. You are literally wasting your days away in envy and covetousness because you want what others have. And you don't ever do anything to deal with that type of self-thought. You're not going to experience these things because your mind is not prepared. Well, well, well maybe, you, maybe it's not self-pity. Maybe it's just self-deprecation. Maybe it is. It's just all of the accusing thoughts of the enemy. That It's like God's trying to tell you something and the enemy's trying to tell you something. And the enemy's words are always to to accuse you and make you feel like you are not in the love of God. And so you have two words to choose from. And if, if you're struggling with self-deprecation, it's like, you know what, God, I don't want your word. I'm just gonna sit here and wall. I'm gonna just like a blanket, cover up in the words of the enemy. You know, he just says, I'm, I'm worthless, I'm horrible. God doesn't love me. 
How could God love me? And you just, you what? You spend your days wasting away and resting in, in what the enemy has to say about you. Think about what's actually being done. That's unbelief. Unbelief is what that is. The number one thing that God's trying to rid out of us is unbelief that we would believe his words. Yes, self-pity is going to come. Self-deprecation's going to come. But is there any war against those thoughts? Is there any actually girding up the loose ends of your mind? If not, you will not experience hope, holiness, and fear appropriately in your life because your mind is not girded. It's not prepared for action. You have to deal with the self-pity and the self-deprecation. What about the self-exaltation in your mind? Totally in love with yourself. All your thoughts, according to the world, narcissistic. Me, 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 me. Life is about me. And if life's gonna be good, it's gonna be me. Everyone's attention on me. Everything about that. Are you paying attention to the thoughts that are, that are all consuming of self? Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe those thoughts don't come out in front of people, but they're there. It's an obsession with self a self-reliance, a self-righteousness, thoughts that are always finding your hope and your confidence in yourself. And that could be manifested in never letting, one, letting anyone else in. That could be manifested in always wanting to be the answer person, always wanting to help others, right? That could be manifested in just a sense of, I just feel good about myself because of how wonderful I am. And, 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 but God's trying to get through to show you just the areas of your life you still need to work on, but that's too painful, so you never let them in, and you're always just finding reasons to find. And, and so that life would be manifested in legalism, works, lists, all types of things that just make yourself feel better about yourself. That's, 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 that's a mind that's not prepared. That needs to be girded up. That needs to be thrown away. That needs to be cut out. Self-loathing, any type of self-thought, any type of words that are put together in a sentence to create an actual thought or belief that comes through your mind that you actually believe, if it's not in accordance with God's word, has to be cut off. It has to be girded up. And if those things are just rampant in your mind, loose, there's never any action to deal, to gird up those thoughts. Don't expect to live in hope, holiness, and fear. But he says this as well. So that's the unprepared mind, just, just, just suffering through parasitic beliefs that are never dealt, dealt, dealt with. But then there's also this, the intoxicated mind. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And then he goes into saying, because these, he's assuming these two things are right in your life, therefore, you can go on to hope, holiness, and fear. But the assumption is, the implication is, if it's not, you can't go on to those things. So an intoxicated mind, what is that? He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Intoxicated with what? You can't expect to hope, find all your affection and joy and expectation in what is to come to you if you are intoxicated in the things of this world now. If the passions of your former ignorance are still everything you look to and and long for, there's no effort in your life at all to deal with those passions that are inordinate, those desires that create the fighting and the war and the lack of peace, all of that according to James, that this is why you fight and why you're miserable and why you kill each other is because your inordinate desires are rampant in your mind, not being controlled So the person who calls on God as father, but they have an unprepared mind and they have an intoxicated mind, just intoxicated by the pleasures of the world, whether it be status, whether it be money, whether it be things material, 
whether it be that, that next thing, whether it be experiences, you know, sensuality, anything that's just a sensual feeling of life, like everything is wrapped up in the here and now. Just you can't even think straight spiritually because you're so intoxicated by the, the passions of your flesh. Do not then leave here and say, man, I don't see hope, holiness, and fear in my life and then blame something else. Maybe the mind actually has to be dealt with. And so I'll leave you with a few verses that can help because the focus here, the focus of what God's doing is he is invading our mind. All of the scripture is the word. The word is powerful because it, and it goes through ears and it gets understood by a mind and a life is changed. And so we put our efforts into growing in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus because it will change our life. Let me give you some verses. You'll see them on the screen. Take a picture, write them down, memorize these through the week. If you're worried that, man, I don't see any of these in my life, but I want to, here's three verses to start with. Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. Let me get to it. It's gonna sound very similar to what Peter's saying. It's the same thought. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, motivated by God's mercies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse two, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. That's what I want. I want to be transformed. I want hope, holiness, and fear. How? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are loose ends that you must deal with. You have to let God in. You actually start having to make a deal to fight the war of the mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, meaning there are still things you walk in that you believe that are not true. Belief will affect your life. And if you may not even know it, which is why you may need to get together with another believer, come see your pastors, let someone in your life to hear your thoughts and to help you start renewing. Well, when you said that, that's actually not, do you realize that you're walking around believing that? Do you realize, this is how this is affecting your life. Did you know the scripture says this concerning that belief? And so you do this next verse that I'm gonna show you on the screen. You're gonna see it here. Second Corinthians 10, two through six says this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let me ask you this. Do you wake up every day thinking about, there are gonna be thoughts that come into my head that I am ready to punish? Probably not. You probably just let them come and you, re, you just kind of live in them as they come. That's just how we all do. Unless we're making some type of active fight against the mind, then they just come in and we just, okay. What is, what is Paul doing here? Destroying arguments. It doesn't mean you're, you're fighting with, with someone in a lecture hall. It, it's talking about the thoughts that come to your mind. Destroying arguments in every lofty opinion. What, how do you know what's right and wrong if it's raised against the knowledge of God? You have to know this. And you do what? You take every thought captive, whether it's self-pity, self-deprecation, self-righteousness, self-loathing, whatever that self-talk is that may not be true, and you take it captive and you hold it up against Christ. It's like, no, this is a lie. And then you renounce it and you throw it out. And then you rest in what God says about you. You take it captive. That's an interesting disposition, isn't it? Maybe we need to start having the disposition individually about our own mind that I am ready to punish any disobedience that comes into my mind, right? That's that being prepared for action, the mind being prepared. And then a final verse here, look at Philippians. 
Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's in the mind. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, this, this, this overtime hearing God's word, learning God's word, seeing it, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How often do you think about your mind being controlled and actually practicing controlling the mind? Maybe that's where it needs to start. If you do not see hope, holiness and fear in your life, it's probably because the mind is unprepared and intoxicated and God has given you a word and given you very specific things to actually do to help in that fight because he wants his people, he wants his people to live in hope so that your faith and your hope are in God and not to be controlled and bound by the cares and the anxieties and the stresses and the horrors of the world. God has saved you, children. Live in that salvation and, and, and focus on it and through the affection of loving God more than anything else, let it bubble up in you into this type of person that can change the world and he will use you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is, your word is vital for our life. And thank you that you meet us at the right time to give us the words we need and you don't force us to try to understand everything at once. It is a journey. You will be working on us till the day we die. But God, give us the disposition of what Peter's talking about. Help us to be people who are so consumed with what is to wait us, to have our affections fully placed on you, to honor you in the first and greatest commandment, to love you more than anything else, so much so that all the left and the right and the things in the ditches on the side of the road can't pierce through our excitement and our joy because our hope is in you. And then, God, we look to you and learn your character. We learn how and see how holy you are, that, God, you would be with us in our journey to say no to sin and our former ignorance and to live in holiness now for your glory and for the sake of those still lost. And then, Father, help us to, to not have fear that we're not saved if you've saved us by the blood of your son, but to live in a reverential type of fear that motivates us and an honor that makes us to want to respond and give our life to you because you gave us your life. It is worthy of it. Father, shower us with patience and mercy and continue to grow your people in this knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.